Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we soar to new heights with the featured storytellers from the opening show of our action-themed season, Jump, held on November 29th, 2016, at Jump, our new all-ages venue in downtown Boise. Next up, here featured storytellers Tom Aiello, Maggie Soderberg with Scott Simplot, and Talon Owens jump right in. It's time to take action. It's story time. So I'm going to welcome to the stage our first featured storyteller, Tom Aiello. <laughs> so I was thinking about how to tell this story, and I know that traditionally... You tell a story starting at the beginning, and then into the middle, and then to the end. And I thought, I've never been very traditional, so I'm going to tell my story starting at the end. Here's the end of my story. I have a job that I love so much, I would do it for free every day. And still, people fly in from all over the world and pay me to do it. I want to tell you the story of how I got there. What I do is I teach base jumping, which is parachuting from fixed objects. Who here has actually heard of base jumping? Anybody? Yeah, okay. You live in Idaho. Uh, So (laughs) base jumping is parachuting from fixed objects, which is different from parachuting from aircraft. That's skydiving. Base is an acronym. It stands for Building Antenna Span Earth. It's the types of things that we parachute off of. And I founded and operate, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, I run a school in Twin Falls for base jumping called the Snake River Base Academy. It's the world's only full-time dedicated base jumping facility for training facility. Uh, And it's the only thing like it that has ever existed in the world. I want to tell you how that happened because it doesn't seem like it happened, I don't know, normally to me. About, ooh, well, I feel 25 years ago. uh, When I was in college, I was a climber and I liked to do a lot of rock climbing, had some friends. We went out climbing a lot. And I was climbing up the side of this giant cliff in California. Uh, it was actually a multi-day climb. We are on the third day of this climb. And I'm waking up on the third morning with my regular climbing partner, who's now a school teacher, I think, in Utah. Uh, and as I wake up, I see these two guys go flying by. And I looked at that and I said, I don't know what that was, but I got to do that. <laughs> Whatever it was. So, whoa, mic adjustment. So I decided I wanted to find out what that was. That was hard to do then because we didn't have quite so much internet and easy information. So I had to go out and figure out what they were doing. And it turned out it was this base jumping thing and how I could do it too. I spent a good bit of time and energy learning to base jump. And that's a whole other set of stories probably, 10 or 12 of them, 30 or 40 of them. Lots of mistakes, lots of learning, lots of trial and error. And errors can be very painful in base jumping. If you want to hear about that, shoot me an email because that's all I do all day now is tell people how to learn how to base jump without making all the mistakes we made. But that's not the point of this story. A couple years later, I've done a lot of base jumping and I was in Twin Falls, Idaho. And at this time, I live in California. Uh, Turns out Twin Falls has the best legal bridge for jumping in the United States, probably one of the best ones in the world. So I would drive out here probably every other weekend that summer I drove out here. It's a 12-hour drive from where I was living. Drive out to Twin Falls, do some jumping, meet up with friends from other parts of the country, other parts of the world, jump with them. 
I was jumping in Twin Falls, and I was jumping with my friend Dwayne Weston. Dwayne was the best, most skillful base jumper that has ever lived. Uh, he's, he's dead now, also from base jumping. Whole other story, maybe for another night. But Dwayne was the most skillful base jumper of all time, probably still today. No one has approached his skill level. And we're jumping, and Dwayne says, hey, you want to do a jump with me? And this is a lesson I teach my students. If you ever have the opportunity to be the low guy on a two-way with Dwayne Weston, say no. <laughs> Dwayne Weston, most skillful base jumper of all time, legendary low puller. Low pulling, probably not a term you're familiar with, is what we say when you describe deploying a parachute very low to the ground. Uh, as low as possible, meaning less than a second before you hit the ground after deploying the parachute. Uh, and Dwayne was the past master of this particularly perhaps ridiculous art form that probably none of you is actually interested in, at least I hope not. So Dwayne asked me if I want to do a two-way and be the low guy on this two-way with Dwayne. And the low guy means I have to pull after Dwayne, closer to the ground. So we go out, beautiful day, I think it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon maybe on a Sunday, last day of jumping, I was going to drive home that night. We go out to the bridge, get out to the middle, we got a boat down on the bottom to pull us out of the water because there's water underneath the bridge. We're intending to go in the water. We're not going to pull high enough to make it to the land on the landing or on the side. Step over, look over at Dwayne, and I very clearly remember the last thing he said to me, which was, hey, remember, full inflation over water is for wimps. <laughs> I know at some point here, most people would be thinking, this doesn't sound like a great idea. And if I was a normal, responsible human being, I probably would have thought that too. But none of that occurred to me at that moment. So I just forged ahead. We did the jump. Uh, Dwayne did what was probably a very cutting edge aerial. I can't even remember what he did. A bunch of flips and twists and things like that that probably nobody else on earth could have done. Uh, and I more or less just hung out and watched him. And then watched him. And then watched him. <laughs> and then he threw his pilot chute, which is how you deploy the parachute. You take this little round parachute and you throw it off your back. It opens your container. It pulls your canopy out to line stretch. And, and hopefully that happens before you reach the ground. Uh, Dwayne deploys his pilot chute. I look at him, I reach back, I throw my pilot chute a split second after him. Well, we have video of this, so it was maybe a quarter of a second after him. I throw my pilot chute, I look down, and I have time to think one thing. And what I think is, fuck! <laughs> and I impact the water. Uh, it, this was a very serious incident. I uh, probably hit the water at 80, 85 miles an hour. Uh, I've got, I could pull up my shirt and show you, but I've got a scar that goes from here to here, yeah. I was, I was in the hospital for quite a long time. Hit the water, into the water, I feel the impact. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of impact. It's like getting hit by a car, just all over your body. I come up to the surface of the water, and I know I'm hurt. I don't know how bad I'm hurt. I know something bad's going on. I start swimming as fast as I can to get to the boat, because I'm worried I'm going to lose consciousness. Don't quite remember getting to the boat. Remember Dwayne pulling me out. He used the parachute harness to pull me back onto the boat. They got me back to the dock, got an ambulance down there, brought me up to the hospital in Twin Falls. Everyone here lives in Boise. Twin Falls is a lot smaller than Boise. So got back to the Twin Falls hospital. They wheeled me in. The emergency room doctor looks at me, and the very first thing he says was, call the helicopter. <laughs> because he wasn't going to deal with that in Twin Falls. They bring the helicopter in, they fly me up to Boise, and I get to spend a good two months at St. Al's. Uh, I had 18 hours of neurosurgery, a whole bunch of intestinal reconstruction, a bunch of plates and screws put in my spine. It was a great deal of fun. Uh, 
I was probably spent six months after that in rehab trying to figure out what I was going to do. But here's the interesting thing. What I did was I went back, as I was doing my rehab, learning to walk again, went back to my job in California at the time, which was a fairly boring IT job that I really didn't like very much. And if you were a normal, responsible human being at this point, you'd be thinking what? Yeah, let's go back to work. That base shipping stuff was pretty crazy. Good thing I got that out of my system, right? Okay, so maybe I'm not a normal, responsible person. At least my wife is fond of telling me that. Uh, what I thought was, hey, time to double down. Let's go for the base jumping thing. About six months later, healed up, able to jump again, quit my job, sold my house, went base jumping. Spent a couple of years base jumping, and more or less that was how I got that out of my system. Got to the end of that. Felt like, okay, I've done all the base jumping I want to do, feel like I've had a really good experience. And along the way, met a very understanding woman who was willing to stay with me for a little while. I'm not sure why. Um, and thought, what am I going to do now? Now, what would a normal person do? Go get a job, raise a family, white picket fence, live in the suburb, all that kind of stuff, right? So what did I think? How about this base jumping stuff? Let's do some more of that. So what did I do? I convinced my wife, who's very understanding, that we ought to move to Twin Falls, Idaho, where that bridge was that I had hurt myself on. Moved to Twin Falls, Idaho, because I wanted to teach base jumping. I wanted to teach base jumping for a lot of reasons. I wanted to teach base jumping because of all of my friends who weren't able to do that. Because base jumping has a tremendous surge and loss of knowledge. What we would see was people would get into the sport, they would learn a lot by trial and error, they would try and figure stuff out, they would gain a very high level of knowledge and skill, and then, well, in some cases they would die. That's surprisingly common in base jumping, or maybe not surprisingly. <laughs> uh, and in many cases, they would just decide they were done. They would go get a life, have kids, stop base jumping and we would lose all the knowledge they gained, and the next generation of base jumpers would have to start over. Start over learning all of those things again. So we had this tremendous build and surge and crash of knowledge and skill and experience in the sport, and I wanted to change that, because I felt like all my friends who were gone deserved something to be held from what they had learned. So what I did was I started teaching, and it started slowly, uh, meet people at the bridge, teach some people, and I started out teaching for free. I didn't ask people to pay me. I would just help people I thought wanted help or who asked me for help. And from there, slowly built. I had more people coming, was teaching more classes, and then something changed. What happened? Well, I did a normal, responsible adult thing and had children. And I thought, wow, I guess I better become a normal, responsible adult and have children now. Here's the problem. In order to teach, I was going to have to pay for daycare. And I didn't feel right about taking money from my wife's salary to pay for childcare so that I could teach for free. So what did I do? I started charging people for courses. And everyone else, and there's not, I mean, we're talking about all three other people teaching base jumping in the world at this point. Everyone else is charging for courses already. I didn't really feel good about charging courses, but I decided this was a tough decision. I was going to push ahead, and I was going to start charging for courses. Started charging so that I could pay for daycare. And I realized I had a lot of extra money in the school that I could do stuff with. I was able to buy a building, buy more equipment, have more courses, have indoor packing areas, cameras, video screens, whiteboards, actually organize things, create packing videos, give people equipment. It made the instruction way better. It turned out that it was worth more to pay for it than to get it for free because I was able to do so much better a job. 
it became very popular, and I was slammed. Three years later, I was working nonstop, every day, all summer long, maybe one day off every five days, keep going, 16-hour days teaching. And I thought, I'm going insane. <laughs> I've got to do something about this base jumping stuff. What would a normal person do here? They would back off, cut back, work fewer hours, spend time. You know what I did? I decided we would do more base jumping. <laughs> so what I did is I had bigger classes. I brought in other people to help me teach, people who had been past students of mine, to try and continue the cycle. Most of them were real believers in this, same as me. I remember the first guy who I brought in to teach me, this guy named Eric Miller, who's a professional skydiver in California. And I used to have my daughter sneak money into Eric's suitcase to pay him because he didn't want to accept payment for teaching. And it, it started like that, and very slowly it grew. It grew and it grew, and now we teach introductory courses, which I started with. Eric's teaching courses in Italy and Switzerland. I've got 10 instructors in Twin Falls. They teach courses without me. I don't, when we started, I had to be present for every minute of every course. Now we can teach entire courses on a continent that I'm not even on. It's amazing. And that means I can do just the parts I love. I can focus on the teaching. I can help people. I can look at small things. I can give coaching. I have the best job in the world because I get to do what I would do for free anyway. That's my story, and that's how I got here. Welcome Maggie Soderberg and Scott Simplot. So Scott and I were laying in bed last night thinking about our story and we it we <laughs> we spent so much time about working on this story, it's almost harder than building jump. But, <laughs> but we're both going, damn those English majors. If we were one, we could have done this in five minutes instead of 25 days. <laughs> but I'd like to start out with the welcoming Story Story Night um, to jump. It's such a talented crew and such a great group to work with. Um, and Jody's uh, been such a delight for us to work with and help us with our story. Um, and Sam, it was we did this. We were the other two people that took the story workshop to try to figure out how to do this. And so um, it was fun to see him and, up tonight and Sam, too. Sam learned the lesson. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> well, I would like to start out with saying um, jump has been a real jump for me um, in so many ways. I got involved in this project not because I was an architect, not because I was a designer, not because I was a project manager. Um, I'm really not all that organized. But I got in this project because I raised my hand one day. Um, I was one of those kids in college that maybe one or two of you can relate to that changed their major every semester. I started out in accounting, then I went into um, psychology, then I went into social work, then I went into business, and I finally graduated in occupational therapy. Uh, <laughs> a far cry from doing this project. <laughs> so about a year ago, we had our, 
our grand opening at Jump, and my family came, and my little brother was here, and I was showing him around Jump. And we get to the end, and he goes, wow, this is an amazing project. And I said, well, thank you. And he said, but I can't believe you did this. And I said, why did, why did you say that? And he says, because as a kid, you were like wallpaper. <laughs> you weren't too creative. You, you were just kind of average. You weren't too creative. You weren't too smart, but you weren't too dumb. You weren't too short, but you weren't too tall. You weren't too cute, but you weren't too ugly. But anyway, I was like one of, <laughs> I was one of those people that um, basically, did, you know, we had a crazy family, so I was that lost child that basically disappeared. But um, it's been an interesting journey for me on this jump. I guess one thing I have thought a lot about is, why am I here on this earth? Why are we born? What's my purpose in life? Um, what is it? How can I contribute to this world? So that's always been a question for me. And it's been really interesting because like at 63, five years old or whatever, it's like, wow, this is it. <laughs> is it? Well, uh, first of all, Maggie leaves out a couple of things. She is uh, truly an out-of-the-box thinker. and. Uh, what you see around here is, is uh, a great deal. She's responsible for it. But uh, to, to understand how this in the beginning was that, that this was a total leap into the dark. We, we didn't have any idea what we were going to do or how it was going to work or what it was going to look like. And, um, and and to the serendipity of all of this was just sort of like, how did, how did, how did just the two of us get, 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 get trapped in this thing? And if you, if you knew my dad, it, it has only one explanation. It was a card game. <laughs> I mean, if he wasn't playing with Ron Yonke one night 16 years ago, Ron Yonke wouldn't have had the chance to turn to him and say, Jack. Do you know next weekend they're selling 250 antique tractors in Billings, Montana? <laughs> he said, I mean, you, this, is, this is one of these momentous events that this one individual, Oscar Cook, collected all of these tractors over a lifetime, and they're selling them. And if you ever wanted to have a chance to acquire some antique farm equipment, this is the one and only chance in a lifetime <laughs> And my dad you guys goes, are laughing. We're not. These, <laughs> <laughs> you know, these tractors turned out to be a. So they went. It was like two young boys going to Las Vegas. <laughs> Ron was seventy, and my dad was approaching ninety, and they just went uh, billings, and they were auctioning one tractor off. They auctioned two hundred and fifty tractors off, and I bet my dad bid on two hundred of them. They had a ball. They had a ball. It was three days. He spent $2 million, and he bought 110 antique tractors. They're still laughing, Scott. You might do something a little more serious. This, is, this got to be a headache. Um, and, and when someone asked him, well, what are you going to do with them all? Well, he didn't have it quite figured out where he was going to put them. But he said, I'm, I'm going to take him to Boise, Idaho. I'm going to find a place out by the freeway. I'm going to build a great big barn. I'm going to build a movie theater. I'm going to build a hotel. 
and I'm going to use the tractors to, to farm. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get kids from all over the world and I'm going to fly them to Boise, Idaho. I'm going to have them spend a week out at my farm and I'm going to show them what it was like to farm when I was 18 years old, when he was farming with horses. And I'm going, great idea, Dad. Good luck with that. <laughs> None of, the, none of us in the family thought that this, he quite had it right and, and understood exactly what kids would want to do. And, and so he, he, he was an evangelist. He just said it over and over and over again. And the years went by. Remember, this was 16 years ago that the, the tractor auction took place. And, and, and at some point, he gets a little tired of his idea of having an antique farm up by the freeway. And that's when Maggie came along. So, um, whoops, I forgot. Oh, yeah, serendipity. So going back to that, um, in about 1990, I was at a costume party, a Halloween party in the North End, and um, Scott happened to show up. He, we were both with other people, but he was dressed as an Indian, and I was dressed as a flapper. Um, fast forward seven years, we were married. And three years later, I was on a plane with Esther and Jack to go visit the tractors at Oscar's Dreamland in Billings, Montana. Um, <laughs> but it was, there, were, there were hundreds of them, and it was amazing. I mean, there were these amazing pieces of art and innovation. And I started to fall in love with the idea of what could we do with these things. Um, so one day, I'm in a family meeting, and um, Somebody asks, who wants to champion this project? And I said, well, I'd love to. How hard can this be? And it sounds like so much fun. Well, over the last 12 years, I found out it's really hard, and it's not always that much fun. <laughs> but it was this easy job to get. I didn't have to send, submit a resume. I didn't have to go through a long interview. All I had to do was marry Scott Simplot. <laughs> So the first vision for JUMP was an agricultural science center. And it was um, between 13th and 15th. We hired an amazing architect from Boston, Moshe Softy, to put the design together. And he did an amazing job. But we started to price the project, and we just didn't have the money to do it. And so at that point, the family decided that um, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And more time passes. And my dad gets older, and he goes to a football game, Boise State, playing one of the Fiesta Bowls. And he's on his scooter, and he falls over, and he bumps his head. And now he's got memory problems. And, and eventually, my dad passes away. And another year or so passes as we take care of his affairs. And it's like there's this list, and we're going down the list. And pretty soon, we get down to a part of the list and where it says, tractors. <laughs> well, it, it, my, my dad was a character. And, and he'd taken all of the money that the foundation had, and he bought stock in a fertilizer company called Mosaic. And this just happened to be just before this golden moment in American agriculture when the government decided that we'll make ethanol out of corn and we'll blend it for fuels. So the price of corn went up, 
farming became a very profitable enterprise and the fertilizer stocks went up and up and up and suddenly the foundation had doubled its, its wealth and, and we're sitting there going, damn. <laughs> you know, if, if, if it would have been a perfect excuse if all I had to do is say, look, let's sell the tractors. They're all up in Billings, Montana and Oscar's barn. We'll just have another auction. We'll sell them. They'll be gone. And we'll never have to worry about this thing again. And then I think, oh, I can't use money as an excuse. So what do I do? And what do I do? What do I do? I, I, you know, I just, you know, it felt like I'd be taking the easy way out if I at least didn't try to do something. And so, luckily me, I've got this <laughs> one to work on the project. <laughs> so fast forward four years, and we start to go out again and start to research what could this be. We started out with tractor museums, and um, they. Uh, they were awesome, and people would come and see them, but our concern was how many times a year will they come back. Uh, we also visited art galleries, science centers, parks, am amusement parks, community centers, um, and landed on the idea of what really worked was a venue that was ever-changing and flexible. Um, and so Jump has been built as a really flexible venue that you can use rooms, lighting, whatever, uh, for many different things. So. Jump consists of this room, another room downstairs, and then five interactive studios of um, a kitchen studio, a multimedia studio, an inspiration studio, um, a move studio, and a make studio. So um, that was part of it that we decided would be different areas that could attract different people. Um, we also wanted it to be a fun space, so we started talking about attracting kids with slides, climbing structures, whatever. Um, and we thought it would be a great venue to have downtown just because of the parks and the recreation. So um, we, all, we decided on kind of the design of it, but then we wanted a mission for it. And I think the one thing about JUMP, it's been hard to understand because it's, more, it's a lot of project of the heart instead of the head and you can't see it. But um, our mission that we developed for it was creating an environment for inspiring human potential. And basically, what that means to us is like, when you can find that thing in life that you love to do the most, that's when you are the happiest and you contribute the most to the world. So Jump is about discovering those little things in yourself and we all have a gift. Some of them are like being a good listener or being a good baker or whatever, but they all contribute to a positive thing in our world that um, it helps to share it with other people because when sharing it also enriches our lives. And it was my job to sell us to the family. <laughs> and, and to make it worse, I kept thinking, I don't want this thing to be about JR. I really didn't. I didn't want it to be a place where his artifacts were, his stories were, and his pictures were. And, and so I thought, well, you know, I want to make it sort of abstract, sort of something about the spirit of the fella. So I was thinking, well, you know what, the thing about my dad is he, just give it a try. Just, just give it a try. And it, it would, all through his business career, he just he was open to things. Just give it a try. When, when he jumped into Micron, there's the word jump, it was just, well, hell, just give it a try. And, and, and so I was looking at this thing, and I'm going, just give it a try. Just give it a try. You overcome something, overcome something. And then I was doing this with my hand, and I was saying, well, 
Well, that's what we ought to do. We ought to call this jump. Oh, but there's a problem with calling it jump. You know, I'm worried that my family's going to sit there and think, well, now you're talking about skateboarders. <laughs> and they're going to be... They're going to be jumping down sidewalks and on railings, and you know this is just an, just a frivolous idea. You don't want to do this. So I thought, I'll, I'll I'll plan this thing out. I'll tell them that look, yeah, we're we're saying jump, and that's encouraging people to do frivolous things, but it won't be that at all because I'll say jump stands for just understand more physics. <laughs> I thought this was perfect. <laughs> well, I was, I got voted down three to one, just completely voted down. But luckily for me, a week later, there was a lady in the office who came to me and said, look, I've got an idea. Let's still call it Jump, but let's change the name. Call it Jack's Urban Meeting Place. I looked at her and I thought, hmm. And she said, no, try it. See what happens. And the magic of just what you call something, the rest of my family looked at this and said, oh, that's fine. And suddenly we had their votes, and we had the money to go ahead and build this thing. <laughs> so Jump is built, Jump is open, and there's still a million questions out there. Um, when people come in the lobby, there's two questions are most prevalent. One is, when are the slides going to be open? And the other one is that um, same question we've gotten since the beginning, what is jump? So my office is above, I don't know if, I'll, if any of you tried the jump exhibit downstairs. So when you leave today, look for the jump exhibit in the lobby. It's really fun because you, you, you go down, three, two, one, jump, you jump and it plays it back in slow motion and everybody laughs. You watch yourself jump <laughs> it's really in slow fun. motion. So my office is right above that, and the greatest gift I get is it's constant laughter. So what is jump? Maybe it's about jumping and laughing, jumping and laughing, and trusting your crazy ideas. And that's the story of jump. Super happy to be able to invite Mr. Talon Owens to our stage. I want to start out by asking a question. Now I can't really see many of you guys, but I'm, I'm just gonna like tell by like you know, uh, how many people's lives in here has been affected by? Suicide. Yeah, a lot. Idaho is ranked number four in teen suicides. And today I'm going to tell you about mine. So about two weeks, about two weeks before I was planning on uh, committing suicide, I was, I was with my older sister in a car, well, in her car, uh, coming back from Utah and I was just talking to her about all of these like these dreams I've been having in like death and all of these like wild things and uh, I guess the continual like talking about suicide is kind of what led me up to eventually planning and writing the note so 
there I was, April 6th, at about 11.30 at night, set my phone down with the note to my mom, dad, other family members, my older sister, close friends, and I snuck out my window. It's one story, so it was, wasn't that hard. Uh, and I made my way down from Owyhee Street. Uh, from there, I went to Rose Street, I think it's Rose Hill Street, and then turned right there, went to uh, Vista, not Vista, I think it was Vista, uh, and then turned left, went all the way down Capitol until I, uh, I hit that familiar place in my dreams where I knew I was going to jump. And that was, ironically, the Ninth and Front Street building, garage building behind me. The cops were already there, but not for me. They were there for some other reason. At 11.30 at night, I don't know why, but it, I wasn't too worried about it because they weren't going to stop me from doing what I initially planned to do. So I took the elevator up to the eighth floor of the garage buildings, at the front of the Ninth Street, and I got up on the ledge. And while I, I kind of sat there, looking down, observing everything around me, the city, the police sirens, what, what they were looking at, who they were looking for, the CenturyLink Arena building, the Zions Bank lights, Table Rock, everything. Because I knew that I wanted to take in everything before I actually left. I wanted to leave without regrets. So, I get down from the ledge and think for a second before I'm, I get back up on the ledge and uh, do it. And I, I look off the ledge to see this girl, this mysterious girl, just walking on the third floor. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like 11.45 at night, what is she doing here? But again, I didn't let it bother me. So I got back up on the ledge and I was looking down I look back up, take everything back in, and look back down to see her falling, and then hit the ground. So I froze, and that's where I had to put myself in her position. Not literally, because I'd be dead, but I know, dark humor. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, Metaphorically speaking, like, I had to put myself in her position and think, what the hell am I doing up here? If I were her, I'd be seriously injured <laughs> or dead. So, she made me feel that extreme regret <laughs> without even leaving the building. In that moment of uh, being frozen, a uh, patrol officer came up to the eighth floor and was looking at me. And I saw the lights behind me, but I was still dead, frozen on just watching her body like lie motionless and watching the police rush to the scene to get her on a stretcher and make sure that she's all right. And he, st he speaks to me, and it's like, 
you should get down from there. You could get hurt. And I say, yeah, I know. And I step back from the ledge and I break down, hysterically crying, knowing that what I was about to do was hands down the most regrettable thing I would have done in my life because it would have been the end of my life. We took the elevator back down <clears throat> and I, s I observed the scene that they were rushing her onto the am into the ambulance. I was sitting on the curb. The officers were making calls to my parents because they had no clue that I was there. They thought I was still back at the house sleeping. So when my mom got the call, first she was in denial. And she's like, no. I was thinking it was some sort of prank call. I was like, no, my son's in his room sleeping. Like, it's 12 o'clock at night. What are you talking about? And she checks the room. And I'm gone. Windows cracked. My older sister goes into my room to find the, the note. It's on the stool next to my bed. And then they come down to the garage building. And... There I am, sitting on the curb, crying. My mom goes down, sits next to me, cries on my shoulder, because there's not really much to say after you hear your son was about to jump off of an eight-story building. We get back to my house. We have a good hour and a half conversation about getting me into Inner Mountain. I really didn't want to, because the things I've heard about Inner Mountain is for the... Uh, crazy people, essentially. And as far as I was concerned, I was not crazy, you know, being on top of an eight-story building. So, they urged me into going to Intermountain where I stayed for 10 days. I lost track of time there because they didn't have clocks there, but it was very routine there. But I learned a lot. I learned that life is a valuable thing. Not something that you can take for granted. And you you never really know like what you're missing or who you're missing until they're actually gone. I get out of Inner Mountain and I get back to school and first thing people ask me is, Where you've been? Where have you been, Talon? And I say, you know, just on vacation. I'm not gonna tell them I was in Inner Mountain. <laughs> And uh, it's kind of the story I stuck to for a while until I was open to tell my story to, uh, you know, other people. <sighs> but one of my favorite quotes from the movie Kung Fu Panda is, uh, <laughs> yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery, today's a gift. Guess that's why they call it the present. <laughs> so <laughs> you gotta take it every day <laughs> as if it's like not given to you. Like it's a gift. You never realize the impact that you're making on people's lives every day just by walking around, or if you say hi to someone in the hallway, not knowing that that person might have actually gone home to commit suicide. 
so many teens struggle with suicide nowadays, especially in Idaho, seeing how we're fourth ranked. So that's why I decided to share my story with the Idaho Statesman and become a teen advocate, well, an advocate for uh, teen suicide prevention. They shared my story and blew up all over Facebook, uh, which it was, I wasn't expecting much of it, much to come from it, but here we are now, speaking in front of, I don't know, 300 people I can't see. <sighs> My mom, she founded a uh, nonprofit organization, Heart Inspired, off of a uh, family friend's uh, teen suicide. And I guess she's told people that it's, it's kind of hard to uh, personally advocate for teen suicide when she's had trouble with teen suicide in her family, my older sister and me. So I feel like it's easier for teens nowadays to relate, be able to relate to another teen that's been through what they've been through today because there's so many different stories since everyone, I'm sure everyone, every teen in this room has a story and I hope that they're willing to share someday openly as I am right now. But when I was standing up on that eighth story building and I watched her fall and lay motionless, that's when I realized that we don't jump to fall. We should jump to rise and triumph over like what what we're like what we're doing. Like because we have I don't know how many days are there in a year and multiply that by a hundred <laughs> that many days in your life to do something amazing and impact on so many people's lives. Jump for joy. Jump to rise. I'm done. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Bob Haycock, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Elizabeth McKetta, and me, Jody Eichelberger. With big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, this project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the Jump Show sponsor, Bath Planet. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessare. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. And show photography is by Paul Budge. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Story Story Night.